All right. Sally sells seashells by the seashore. All right. Boom. (laughs) All right. Welcome to the Salty Talks podcast. Uh, This is your go-to podcast for information about the aquaculture sector in Maine. So today I'm here with Bobby Harrington, who is a research, research associate at University of Maine's Aquaculture Research Institute. And we're gonna talk a little bit about geosmin today. So what the heck is that? Um, Bobby, if you wanna introduce yourself really quick and then um, maybe we can get into this geosmin thing. Yeah, well, thank you for the, um, the en- excellent introduction. Uh, so I am uh, Robert Harrington. I go by Bobby mo- mostly. Um, and so, yeah, so what I do at the Aquaculture Research Institute is I facilitate uh, research uh, based on, um, focused on fish rearing. And so what we mo- mainly focus on is recirculating aquaculture problems, um, whether that's disease or, um, or off flavors like we're gonna talk about today or um, production grow out or feed trials. I help with um, basically the, the day-to-day um, on recirculating systems. So I build recirculating systems. I, uh, I repair them, run them, um, and then I train students and staff here on, on how to use them. And so that's what I normally do. And then about, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, the USDA and, and University of Maine um, came together for a collaboration um, to focus on uh, one of the uh, problems in recirculating aquaculture these days, and that's off flavors. And so right now I'm running a, uh, an off-flavor testing facility. So we're focused on geosmin and 2-methylisoborneal. Awesome. Um, so the off-flavors that are, we're talking about here in fish tissue are coming from geosmin and, what did you say the other one is called? And, and 2-methylisoborneal. We, we also say MIB on that one. Nice, yeah. Uh, or 2-MIB. Falls uh, right off the top. Yeah, yeah, that's a little <laughs> bit easier to say than uh, methylisoborneal. Um, and that's, the, so the MIB is a, 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 like a, a smaller player in this game. Geosmin is the predominant flavor that people uh, taste and smell. Um, and that's the one we focus on the most. There are a host of, uh, of off-flavor compounds, um, but the two that we focus on are geosmin and MIB. We'll say MIB for, for the rest of this. I think it's gonna, it's gonna help everybody. <laughs> Mib. <laughs> Mib. Um, awesome, so starting off with geosmin, I think in general that's probably not something that most people have heard about, or they might think they don't know what it is, but uh, geosmin is when people say they love the smell after it rains, right? That's geosmin, that sort of like earthy um, aroma that we all know and love. Yeah, it's often described as uh, earthy or musty. Um, I always describe it as earthy. Uh, Other people taste it as musty. but it is one of the components of the smell in the forest after it rains. It's naturally occurring in the soils and, and waters um, in our environment. And it's the, uh, it, it comes from bacteria. Um, their, so when bacteria go through their metabolic processes, they have um, basically a, you know, waste molecules that come out of that, um, just like we do when we, um, you know, break down food and go go throughout our you know daily existence and metabolize things 
so one of those or two of those uh, byproducts are geosmin and, and MIB, and, and so those just kind of come out in, in the water and the soils. Um, they are both lipophilic compounds, so that just means that they, um, instead of being associated with like polar things like water, they want to be um, associated with lipids. So when you have these molecules come out, um, they're semi-volatile. They can, they can come out in the water and the soils and they can go into the air. Um, and so we can smell that. But they also can go into um, lipids. And the closest kind of lipid source that you would find in like a stream or a river would be a fish. Uh, and, so, and so that's what happens in the natural environment is that you sometimes can get, um, let's say like excessive concentrations of geosmin and MIB. Typically that will happen if you have a cyanobacteria bloom, which I think a lot of listeners might have seen on a lake, um, especially in Maine um, in the summertime, if you have algal blooms, those algal blooms can produce off-flavor compounds. They can make the fish in that pond taste like mud or earth. And that's kind of something that everybody kind of has probably tasted when they had catfish, um, you know, or tilapia. Uh, the problem in recirculating systems is that we get these bacteria growing in our research systems and it concentrates in there because we're recirculating water, we're reusing it for environmentally friendly purposes. Um, and it, it kind of gives you that, that earthy flavor in salmon. And nobody that I've met wants earthy, musty tasting salmon. I uh, <laughs> most definitely do not want <laughs> earthy, <laughs> musty tasting salmon. Um, Really quickly, before we get into the geosmin and recirculating aquaculture systems, is fish the only um, organism or place that we might be experiencing it, or are we experiencing it in um, vegetables that might be grown in the ground, or drinking water, uh, yeah, wine that's perhaps? A, that's a super good question, right? So uh, we've all tasted this and we've all smelled it. Um, and. Smelling it, people are usually not put off by it unless it's extremely pungent, um, which it rarely is in nature. Um, it will be in my lab, though, if you ever come visit me. Um, <laughs> uh, but so you, you do taste these things in, in like a lot of root vegetables, especially like beets. Um, and you, and you, you'll get it in wine. Um, and that's typically not considered a good flavor in wine, but I'm not like a sommelier or something. So um, that kind of question is not best uh, answered by me. But, but, um, but yeah, so we've, we've definitely had this in other products. So it's not just a fish issue. It's a, it's a food issue. Um, and it's Typically with vegetables, we don't mind. I, I think everybody likes uh, the flavor of beets and a component of that is geosmin. And I don't know, I guess um, people at home should also understand basically that we are super tasters for this compound. So we're, we're not talking about like really high concentrations either here. We're talking about um, parts per trillion. So, oh, wow. So we, the, the human tongue on a sensitive taster can taste 10, uh, about 10 parts per trillion. Um, and you can see a little variation if you, if you read on studies of this that some, some people might be able to do eight or six parts per trillion. I those, could probably do that. You probably could. Yeah, <laughs> yeah those are the, you, you might be a super <laughs> taster. Um, and, and so in water, it's, it's, you can taste it because there's not a whole lot of um, 
background flavors in water, right? Um, and so you can taste it fairly easily in water, but when it's in a fish, uh, there's a bunch of competing flavors in there. And so what concentration does it need to be in a fish before it becomes an issue? That's, a, that's always a, a question that people are asking. And, and it's, it's taster dependent and it's fish dependent. So if you have a really strong tasting fish, then, then geosmin's not going to be as much of a problem there. If you have a light kind of, you know, white fish like, like tilapia, then, then you start tasting it. Um, and so us being super tasters complicates my job. So we, now I have to have an instrument that can measure at parts per trillion, which isn't impossible. Um, we, we've definitely done it. Um, it's just one of the, one of the problems associated with, with analyzing this, this molecule or these molecules, just to say. So it's in super low concentrations. Um, is geosmin at all dangerous or harmful? No, yeah, and that's, that's always something we want to um, tell people is, no, it's definitely non-toxic. It's not going to be a problem for anybody. Um, these are in ultra-low concentrations as well. Um, even if they're in high concentrations, it's just going to taste really bad. Um, or earthy. I don't know. It, I'll leave people to decide whether it's a bad flavor or not. I mean, I like some earthy flavors. I just... Good flavor in beets, bad flavor in fish. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, great. So I think we should get into geosmin and um, the problem that it causes in recirculating aquaculture systems. Um, but maybe let's just quickly talk about what a recirculating aquaculture system is for those who might not know. Yeah. So I've been building recirculating systems here at UMaine since 2015. And over that time, I've been talking with lots of students and describing what a recirculating system is. And so I think for me, the best way to tell a listener what a recirculating system is, is it's a pool. It's exactly like your pool at home, right? So you have a big tank, which is your pool, and then you have some sort of filtration system built into it. Um, the filtration systems for recirculating aquaculture are leagues above what a pool is, um, and we, obviously we don't use chlorine in our, our, uh, our recirc system, but the idea is that you have these massive tanks, and they're getting bigger every year um, as people um, you know, increase um, this industry. And so you have tanks, you have biofiltration, you have UV sterilization, you have um, some sort of uh, particle filtration, whether that's like a sand filter or a bead filter or a drum filter. And then you have other, other things like ozonation filters on these. Um, and so basically what we're doing is we're taking in water from natural sources, whether it be uh, the, the bay, wells, or, or maybe really clean stream water. Um, and then we're, we're filtering it, we're using it to raise fish, and then when it leaves the facility, it would then be filtered again to remove nitrate waste. And, and depending on the system that you built, you can be fairly effective at removing nitrate waste. And then that water is then discharged, typically back where you took it, unless it's a well, you don't discharge back into a well. Um, and so, so that's, that's recirculating uh, aquaculture. And the greatest thing I think about recirc 
um, systems is that you can put them anywhere you have a good water source. The problem we have right now is that we are buying, you can go to, you can go to the store right now and you can go and you can get some Chilean sea bass or even Chilean salmon, right? And it doesn't make sense, right? Why are we taking a fresh fish product, making it in Chile, which they, they make great fish there. I'm not saying anything bad about that, but it's the transportation cost, that carbon cost of transporting our, our, our fresh foods all around the world is, is killing us, literally killing us. So, so the idea of research systems is getting food closer to the source. So if we need to feed the, the market in Boston, Maine is a great place to grow uh, salmon. Uh, and so we can feed the Northeast with uh, facilities in, in Maine because we have a lot of clean water sources. So that's my favorite thing about recirculating systems, I think, <laughs> is, the, is the potential for it being a uh, more green uh, method of, of growing fish. Yeah, it also um, makes seafood more accessible to people, right, who wouldn't typically maybe be able to afford seafood, um, like wild-caught seafood prices and like in middle America where they obviously don't live on the coastline and like you're saying seafood is would be harder to get um, but there's like recirculating aquaculture systems in Wisconsin and yeah um, I've heard from multiple people in the industry that that one of the major major goals is to get costs down for salmon so to make salmon more affordable you know make it so it's not just like some sort of like fine dining uh, level food uh, something for that can compete with maybe chicken and pork, and price-wise. Right now, they're not right. They're, they're not there yet, but um, they're going to they're going to get there as more and more recirculating systems get online. And this is probably going to take ten more years here in the U.S. Realistically, it's been a uh, there's a lot of ambition here, but there's there's a lot of challenges too. And we're, I think the industry is trying to do things as clean as possible. Um, I think most uh, industries um, give the American consumer uh, like a bad feeling, right? Like, uh, you know, industries lie to us or something about pollution, especially when it comes to pollution. Um, but there's, there's something to be said about the, the aquaculture industry is they need fresh water sources. They need clean water sources. So they can't pollute their water source. Uh, and so the, the, it won't be a long-term solution, right? So, so they're, they have a vested interest in keeping things clean. And so that's always, a, a, I think, a, a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, awesome, so now that I think we have a better understanding of recirculating aquaculture systems, let's move into why geosmin is um, can present a problem in these systems and um, what we're doing about it. And by we, I mean you, because <laughs> I'm doing nothing about it. Well, that's not true. We're all a, we're all a big team. Uh, all right. So the the main way geosmin um, presents a problem in recirculating aquaculture systems is we've primarily relied on bacteria in these systems to help us. Um, and so the way that works is we have these things called biofilters. And in biofilters, we, we use a, a media to basically grow lots of bacteria. And these bacteria are, are mostly, they're just, they're harmless bacteria. They're, they're quite friendly. They do a, a good service for us. 
and they uh, break down uh, ammonia. So ammonia is a problem in, in these systems uh, because fish do what fish do. They, they eat food and then they poop and then they swim around, right? And so all that, that, that uh, waste from the fish has to be broken down. So what we do is we try to remove the solid waste first with um, some sort of solid filtration, like a drum filter. And we try to get that out as quickly as possible because the longer that stays in the system, the more ammonia it's gonna make. Um, and so, so it will make some amount of ammonia and the biofilter breaks that down. So when the biofilter is breaking ammonia down, it breaks it down into nitrite and then a different set of bacteria will then break the nitrite down into nitrate. And nitrate is considered the safer version of, of this waste product, all right? So um, it's generally not toxic to fish at normal concentrations. Uh, it, can, it can present some, some challenges here and there. Um, and so we have these huge biofilters and these things can sometimes create MIB and geosmin while they're breaking down waste. And so, and this is very system specific and this is regionally specific and it's also specific to what salinity you're running in your system. So some farms might have no problem with this and some farms might have a real hard problem with this. And, it, and it's probably mostly related to the species of bacteria they have in their biofilters or in other areas of your system that may grow bacteria. And is that something that you can control for, or that's just kind of how it is, that these bacteria are just in some systems and not others? So it's hard to control for. It's hard to change your, your, your microbiome of your system, basically, is what we're talking about. This is like a, this is basically, this is research that's kind of going on everywhere, that these microbiomes, how, how important are these in our guts? How important are these in a recirculating system, right? Like. These these uh, these bacteria um, are understood fairly well, but in practice, in recirculating systems and 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 and, and fish farming in general, um, poorly understood by let's say the the average technician. So the average technician is not a microbiologist; they are um, clearly fish biologists, right? And so. Uh, it's it's very complicated, <laughs> and so how do you change the the uh, microbial community in your recirculating system? I don't know. I mean, it's set probably by your your input water sources to come in with some level of bacteria, and then that's probably where you're starting your community. Is that input water source comes in? Um, there are some additives you can add, some bacteria that are known to be pretty good bacteria, and you can buy these and add them into your, uh, into your system. Uh, people that run aquariums at home might have done this before with, with several products. So there are like basically starter mixes that you can add to these. Uh, and I think that these starter mixes um, are generally pretty good. Um, but whether or not some of them may lead to geosmin, I don't know. Um, it's it's a, a part of the research that really needs to be filled out here is understanding these these communities, and it's going to be super difficult because they're all different all around the world, and it's all based on our natural environments that we're around that these bacteria are coming into. Yeah, so from. it seems to be very like a it would be a very site specific problem to manage yep. rather than yeah. just a general solution. Yeah, not a really a one size fits all 
solution here. And that's the problem. That's where it gets complicated on this. So Jasmine is there and um, it just then is, it's a problem and it's something that we then have to deal with um, and adapt to knowing that it's in the system. So does that mean treating water with UV or um, I know that depuration? Yeah, these are, this is the like the million dollar question right now. Or I guess it's 2022. This is the billion dollar it's question. It's actually 2023. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in the lab too long. Um, so, so here's the uh, this is this is the trick, right? So, how do we remove these? How do we detect them, and how do we remove them from the system? And so that's what a lot of um, research is focused on right now. Is is trying to, to remove these from systems. What we, I can tell you what doesn't work is <laughs> there's a lot of research on what failed on this. So uh, UV um, sterilization, that doesn't work. Ozonation can work, but the, the levels that you, and I should step back, ozonation in um, recirculating systems, basically you are creating ozone, which is uh, three oxygen molecules bonded, bonded together. It's highly toxic, it can kill human beings, it, can, it kills basically every living thing um, it, it can, in oh. certain concentrations. So it's, it's, it's super, super toxic. Uh, and that's the good thing and the bad thing about it. So we use ozone in these systems to basically kill bacteria, viruses, and it can also break down organic molecules. So it's it's got like this very oxidative, um, high oxidative potential there. So it, it basically can tear apart um, organic molecules, but in, in doing so, cleans your water by removing viruses and bacteria that you don't want. That's head, this is all heading to the tanks, not not associated with not the biofilter. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So ozonation is great. It needs to be run properly, and you can do it at different doses. A light dose, you know, is generally okay with a with a maybe a low stock density uh, system, um, and you got to up your dose. But there's a dose level where you can exceed that that will be harmful to your fish. So what happens with ozone is you you create it in this system in this filtration system, and it it breaks down molecules. But when it starts to get uh, it's it's very unstable at our kind of temperature pressure regime here at the surface of Earth. So that's why we're not breathing in ozone every day, right? Ozone's high in our atmosphere. And so, um, so down here, it breaks down pretty quickly. And so it breaks down before it gets to the tank, unless you overdose uh, your, your system with ozone, and then you have the possibility of killing fish. You need to be at such a high dose for it to be effective at removing geosmin that it starts killing fish, unfortunately. And so that's where a lot of people have run into on that specific problem. And that's been done, that was done over 10 years ago. There's been many papers cited on that. Um, people are still trying to kind of um, mess with that and see if they can do it with peroxides and other, other types of um, solutions to make it more effective. But um, probably not going to be the silver bullet here, ozone. Um, depuration is the only effective way that we have now. The problem with depuration, though, is that it's costly and time-consuming. And so what, what is depuration, I think, uh, is probably what everybody's thinking right now. If you say you, you've grown out your, your salmon 
and at the end, uh, your salmon tastes like mud. You you take out a fish, you you cull it, you you everybody at the farm tastes it, and you know cook it up and taste it, and it's ooh, it's a little muddy, it's a little earthy. How are we going to get rid of that? So they put these these um, fish into a separate system, um, typically called a purge system. Um, and so they'll purge the fish for anywhere from 10 days to two weeks, you know, 10 to 14 days or something like that. Um, and when you're doing that, you're just inputting fresh water. So you're not, re you're not um, recirking anything anymore. So you're not recirculating your water. You're not having that water come from the biofilter. This is just uh, oxygenated well water or maybe um, bay water, wherever your water source is, it's going in filling up the tank and it's overflowing from the tank out and down the drain and that's probably being reused that water is probably going to be reused in your recirculating systems um, depending on how you have it set up but but that whole process is an extra two weeks onto your grow on, on after your grow out period and it's a lot of water right and so what we're trying to do is use less water grow more fish use less water uh, and so we need to overcome this depuration process. Like we need to get rid of that. When you say fresh water with depuration, do you actually mean like literal fresh water or you're talking about water that's just not being recirculated? Yeah, when I say fresh water, I, I, I'm assuming, I'm, I'm making the assumption that this salmon system is a freshwater salmon system. Some salmon systems are saltwater driven, um, which is good. Um, you have a little less off flavor problems with saltwater systems, and um, especially if you're in the uh, brackish water. Uh, so you can salmon are really good; they can live in fresh water, they can live in full strength seawater, or you can have them somewhere in between. And, and somewhere in between is a good way to grow um, salmon. Um, and so, yeah, when I'm saying fresh water, I'm saying just a, a, a fresh water source. I, I'm saying um, a, a newly unrecirculated water that's going to be low in geosmas coming into this into this uh, purge tank. And all of the geosmin and MIB is going to work out of the fish over the two-week time period and then kind of just uh, be removed. And that's pretty helpful in reducing your geosmin. The problem is it's... it's it's time consuming and costly. And so in order to get this, the price point for salmon to be cheaper, we need to figure out better less methods. costly, yeah, better methods to do that. And, and it's not only just the price point, it's also environmentally friendly. Like if we don't need to use more water, mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, <laughs> so, so ozone, not doing it. Depuration, not the best. Well, it's what we have. It's effective. We're working with yeah. it. It's effective, yeah. but could be better, right? Yep. So that is where you, well, you already come into play a lot, but um, this is where um, your current research is relevant, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So so when we got some, some new instruments, we wanted to help the industry um, detect Geosmin and MIB. The whole idea was there's a lot there's a lot of these farms starting up. Nobody, I mean, it's a real high capital cost anyway to start one of these farms. It's very technical. Um, the last thing any one of these farms needs to do is start an analytical lab as well. Um, and so, and getting these samples analyzed at a at a private lab would probably be about one hundred and twenty dollars or something like that. 
per sample. Oh, gosh. Um, so it's kind of, it's a little expensive. Um, and it's a kind of a complicated method, so I can understand um, why that is. Uh, and so, and so what we were trying to do is create a Geosmin and MIB testing lab to help not only the researchers that are trying to solve these issues, the problems to these issues, but but also to be a service to um, to the industry uh, members out there. So they can send in samples to us, and and we can analyze them at a reduced cost, and then uh, you know help them, you know give them advice on how how they might be able to mitigate it. Although they probably know their systems way better than I do, and I <laughs> but I can talk to them about kind of the specifics on these 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 compounds. So. So that's kind of what we're trying to do. When we started, uh, we didn't we did realize and we knew that um, the method was a little time consuming. Um, I think another lab that we uh, knew was doing like ten samples a day, which is not much. Um, so one of our goals for this lab was to increase uh, the amount of sample throughput. But also, I have a lot of jobs, so I can't just be in a lab, you know, crunching out samples all day and 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 being a chemist. I have to also go um, work on recirculating systems and help with projects and do other things. So, and take care of your new puppy. Yeah, and take care of my new dog. You know, so so there's you know there's there's things in life that that one wants to do besides analytical chemistry. Um, and so uh, we wanted a, a method that just kind of like. Um, was a little more automated, um, and so we uh, we came up with a new method for analyzing these odorants. And it, I guess, if I'm going to get into the nitty gritty of it, it's uh, it uses a, a sorbent material that looks a little bit like a piece of rubber uh, on the end of a stainless steel probe, and uh, and. The sorbent material is some some people uh, have heard of it um, referred to as SPME, S P M E, which is solid phase microextraction. Ah, uh, yeah, SPME. Ah, SPME. Oh, of course. Good old SPME. Good old SPME. <laughs> uh, so solid phase microextraction is just um, a super fancy word. Basically, it's a material that um, absorbs uh, organic molecules. And so it's really cool for extracting um, absorb, uh, these organic molecules from water. Fairly easy to do. Uh, and so if we want to just test the system water, um, we, we have a method now that's, that's excellent. Uh, the problem with the old SPME method was that it was a little fiber. It was like this little teeny, like, really coarse, like, horsehair kind of thing, you know. And, and, uh, and it had limited space. And uh, and uh, for attaching these these molecules, and so you could sometimes overload that spemi fiber. You can overload it with your sample if you had a, a high concentration sample. Because you got to remember, this is we're not just extracting at this point geosmin and MIB. We're extracting all the volatile and semi-volatile compounds in our in our sample, and so then we have to tease it out in our gas chromatograph and our mass spectrometer. So um, what we're we didn't like about the fiber was that you can overload it and it's also a little brittle um, and then um, they have this thing called a spemi stir bar right solid phase micro extraction stir bar and it's just like this little uh, bar that can be magnetically stirred it's a it, and it has a plastic coating with a with a spemi coating on top of that and so that got rid of that whole brittle problem and that whole uh, 
there's not enough space for for all your your molecules to fit on there that's great now it's working great but it really created the problem of it's super hard to automate because you're spinning a stir bar and a and a beaker of water and how do you automate that and so so the probe the probe thing that was that was created is really great um, it's able to be automated um, it has the same detection level as the other speamy methods but it's automatable it's um, and it's super environmentally friendly with the only uh, chemicals we use in the analysis are um, some some NACL some regular salt um, some pure pure salt and uh, and we also use a little trace amounts of methanol um, and so that's pretty good for an analytical uh, analysis. There's a lot of analysis out there that people would probably be surprised. There's a lot of waste involved in chemistry. Um, and so one of the big movements is like green chemistry is to try to, you know, keep the, keep the methods just as good as they are or improve them, but also just improve their environmental impact. And so that was kind of a cool component of this, of this method that we developed. How does this method work moving forward? Like, is the plan to, I guess, have other labs doing this as well? Or? Yeah, so we can, now at our lab, we can do more samples per day. So if people start sending us samples, we can get a quicker turnaround time for them. Um, I'm not in competition with anybody. The more people that, that can analyze this and that can um, help with the, the problems, um, the better and so so i think it for us the, the the best thing to do is now get the word out about what we've done and uh so people in the industry know kind of hey we're we're a valuable resource to you if you want a, a reduced price um, analysis on on you know water samples or fish samples you can send them over to us because um, i do both water and we can test it in fish fish tissue is a little bit more difficult to to analyze but we can still do it um, and I think I'm going to publish a paper on that one early this year, hopefully. Yeah, that's you gonna, are. That's going to that's gonna come out. That one's a really tricky one, so it should be um, good for everybody to see. Um, extracting uh, a lipophilic compound from lipids is, uh, is super hard to do. So it's uh, typically back in the day, you would use some really harsh chemical like hexane to to extract out organic molecules or odorants and stuff like that from, from fish tissue. Uh, we don't want to do that. We don't want to use hexane. I know we can use hexane today. I can go, go grab a giant bottle of hexane and start um, extracting. But uh, I think the, uh, the thing is, is we should be env more environmentally friendly about our, our way of an uh, analyzing things. So hopefully, uh, maybe early this next year or this year, 2023, we'll, we'll have uh, We'll have a publication on extracting geosmin and MIB from fish tissue, and that's uh, that's been a little bit of a pain to, to work out, but it's it's uh, it's working. That's awesome. I am looking forward to when that paper comes out. Yeah, it's gonna be rad. Yeah, I'm gonna add it to my list of fun and exciting reading that I do in my free time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it'll get several reads worldwide. <laughs> a couple dozen. A couple dozen, maybe. I'll be happy with that, yeah. <laughs> um, you should have named your puppy <laughs> Speamy. <laughs> Speamy. I, I named my dog Beryllium 10. Oh, that's almost as good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a <laughs> only 
chemists get that kind of stuff, I suppose. Um, do you call it beryllium ten every time, or? No, I, I do. I don't think he understands that many syllables in a name, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we, we call him Bucky for short, but. Bucky, yeah. that's a good one. Yeah, his 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 online handle for his uh, for his uh, you know his fee collar uh, uh, exploits is is beryllium ten. Um, but uh, if you are interested, if you're out there, you're and you're in the aquaculture industry, and you're interested in and uh, Geosman and MIB testing, um, just contact me at the University of Maine, uh, robert.harrington at maine.edu. And, uh, and yeah, and I can do some testing for you at reduced costs and, and, and help you work through any um, off-flavor problems that you might have. Um, yeah, because this isn't, I mean, this, sometimes this is a problem in, in research systems, but it also can be an issue in pond aquaculture as well. So, you know, there's other people that are, interested in this besides people that are in uh in salmon aquaculture specifically but um but yeah off flavor problems yeah <laughs> sounds yeah. like yeah. You, <laughs> i could have you, a couple meetings <laughs> right you, you'd be surprised right there's like communities of of odorant um analyzers out there that I, I actually <laughs> didn't really know about until about a year and a half ago when I got into this. It's very uh, specific. Yeah, they do all sorts of things with like flavors of butter, That's um, awesome. flavors of wine, uh, all sorts of, of things out there. So fish is just one of the many um, you know, foods that have off flavor problems. I mean, every food kind of has it. Um, but yeah, so it's it's uh it's pretty it's pretty exciting it's pretty fun it's pretty interesting too to see what uh what other uh uh food chemists are up to out there uh, yeah. yeah um well speaking of food speaking of fish this is an aquaculture podcast mm -hmm. i do mm -hmm. have probably the most important question of yeah. today's podcast is what is your favorite type of fish to eat oh did you ask everybody this too no actually i somehow have not asked anybody this. Oh, you're, I'm, the, I'm the, you're first. the first. Oh, yeah. good. Uh, well, I'm going to be super boring here. Uh, I'm going to say brook trout. Um, I know I'm a marine science person and people expect me to say angler fish or some like extreme, like, you know, deep ocean, you know, weird fish that they've never heard of. But uh, I like brook trout. Um, Is anybody eating deep ocean? <laughs> Fish? Nobody, nobody eats those things. Uh, well, right. I don't know. Um, maybe somebody out there is, but um, but yeah, no, I'm a, I'm I'm a brook, brook trout fan. I uh, grew up in Maine, uh, fishing for brook trout in the streams, and and um, yeah, I, I I enjoy it. I, I it's just a, a real pretty uh, and rather cool fish. I respect that. I actually myself am a trout person. I would uh, say rainbow trout, but oh yeah. And they're and they're fun to grow too. Uh, in in uh, recirculating systems, trout in general are really fun. Right now, we're doing a steelhead oh, um, project, and I think you're gonna you're gonna interview Matt Hawkyard, uh, Doctor Doctor Hawkyard, on that, and so maybe he'll fill you in on that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Bobby, for coming on the podcast today and teaching us a little bit about Geosman um, and MIB. I'm going to call it MIB. Geosman and MIB. Yeah, and, and, and just so uh, everybody at home is not having a, a conniption fit on this one, uh, it could be pronounced Geosman or Geosman. Yeah, we were having a debate about this before 
before we started. Um, yeah, so if you're out there and you're and you're a real stickler for it, uh, we decided to go with the idea that you don't call it geology. No. You call it geology, so maybe geosma. But I think it's a tomato tomato thing. I, I, I don't, you know, as I guess I, I guess an expert in, in in the analysis of geosmin geosmin. I, I don't care how it's pronounced, I suppose. <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah, well, um, thank you for taking yeah. time to talk with us today. Yeah, it was no awesome. Problem. This was fun. Great.